Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Buen dia, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to bringing you sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the world. Tonight's interview was recorded on location on an isolated island about 20 miles off the Pacific coast of Panama. So sit back, relax, turn up your speakers, and join me on the trail less traveled tonight in Panama. We are sitting here on location on an island about 20 miles off the coast of Panama. We're on the Pacific side and we're looking towards the Pacific. It's almost reached high tide. The waves are rolling in directly in front of us. The sun is partly covered by some clouds and we're sitting underneath a little coconut palm tree. So we've got a little bit of shade here. Behind us is semi-thick forest over to my right. Right behind us, it's beautiful. There's some peanut plants. It's a pretty rough transition from the beach when it's been baked by the sun and how hot it is to this beautiful juxtaposition of the soft, dewy manny, they call it, which is in the peanut family. And it's almost like cloves. And it's always a little bit wet. So it's a nice transition to walk from the hot beach back there. Sitting here with Timmy Bergstresser. Timmy is in a generation lineup of adventurers, boat builders, and wizards in general. Thank you so much, Timmy, for, first of all, inviting me to join you and your family here on this adventure to Panama. You're so welcome, Mandela. It's been a pleasure having you join us. We haven't had a whole lot of friends check out this part of Panama before with us. Timmy was a professional board sailor, as they used to call it back in the day. Windsurfing is a more common term nowadays, I suppose. And his father was a boat builder. He spent a lot of time in his teens on the boat that his father built in Colorado, and they took it to the Caribbean and the Bahamas, and they sailed around there. For about 12 years, they were on the boat, off and on. The boat was built in a horse pasture in Colorado, and Timmy has also built a boat himself and has chartered that with his family in the Bahamas and the Caribbean, and that is also how we came to this place that we're sitting right now. Timmy, just for a moment, I want you to take us back to the first time you saw Playa Grande. We had taken some time off from doing the charter biz in the Virgin Islands, and we said, hey, let's take a year off and cruise the Western Caribbean. We really didn't know a whole lot about it at the time. Ended up going through the canal, and we were going to sail up to Nicaragua, and along the way, we started checking out some islands along the coast of Panama, and we fell in love with one in particular, Oh, it was incredible. We saw this fantastic surf break. There was no one anywhere near the island, or on the island, I should say. We started kind of inquiring, seeing if it was possible to buy a tiny little slice of paradise, so to speak. And it's been almost 10 years now, and we try to get back once or twice a year, maybe up to a month or two at a time. We just really fell in love with it. Tell us about what you're doing 
on the island now. You have purchased property after seeing it and visiting it multiple times. We're in the process of building a cabana, and before that, it's been totally primitive. There's no electricity on the island, which is really awesome. It's camping out with a palm thatched roof rancho, as they call it, dirt floor. At times, you know, when you're here for a month or so, that can get a little bit old. So we're putting a little bit of cement in and basically making a little easier living arrangements, a little more civilized to some degree. You know, we're going to have some solar panels and actual running water. So it'll be a little easier to live here with my family. I've got two girls and we're going to try to spend more time here out of the year. We're hoping to maybe spend up to five months out of the year here in Panama. That was the whole reason for building a more, I guess, substantial structure. When you say the word rancho, can you explain to the listeners what that is? Rancho basically is some type of hardwood. Normally you just get it right on your own property. It can be teak or madronia or there's many different types of wood. And then they take palm royale, which is a palm that has a very long leaf to it. And they split it down the center and they layer that on this kind of wood frame and it's beautiful. You have this hardwood structure that's been woven with palm thatch. They last about five years, six years max, and then you have to do another one. So it's not a permanent structure, which is kind of neat. It's totally organic. It's about as sustainable as you can get. You know, you get everything off your own land. They're really nice. The downside is generally you've got a dirt floor and sometimes doing battle with the scorpions. And, you know, we actually love seeing the bats at night, but We've had some friends that have come with us before and been freaked out about the bats flying around next to your hammock. So, <laughs> Awesome. We are on location on an island about 20 miles off the Pacific coast of Panama. We're sitting on the beach looking towards the Pacific Ocean, and I'm speaking with Timmy Bergstresser. Tim Bergstresser was a professional board sailor, windsurfer, and boat builder. Now, Tim, my first question for you is, where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Southern California. I really fell in love with the ocean. You know, I did a lot of biking in the dirt, BMX as they called it, skateboarding, but surfing was really my number one thing. Oh, I just had some really magic memories of surfing in Seal Beach where they've got these power plants inland, it sounds kind of gnarly, with warm water pumping out and the steam coming off the river in the evening when there was a big south swell. I mean, it really was magical. It just, you know, the pollution here helping out these beautiful red golden sunsets and the steam rising off the water, smoke on the water while you're surfing in this bathtub temperature water. It was just fantastic. And I fell in love with it. I tried to surf as often as I could. You know, I just have some really fond memories. My dad, we used to do trips down to Baja and that was the first experience surfing. A friend had lent my dad a big longboard. We were south of Ensenada, 80 kilometers, something like that. The first time really surfing, and I was hooked ever since that time, and then you know surfed in Seal Beach as much as I could. Now, when you say the term surfing, can you be specific about what it was like as it was evolving? There's surfing, and then there's windsurfing, and nowadays there's a whole lot more other sports that are coming around, but tell us about what you're talking about when you were saying you mainly were really into surfing. This was back in the early 70s. At the time, shortboards were really coming on strong, but there was still a lot of traditional longboard surfing where you're on a board 10 foot, even 11 foot long. I grew up with the longboard surfing primarily. 
and then transitioned into the single fin surfboard, which was approximately six to seven feet long. And then later, surfboards transitioned into uh, multi-fin surfboards, which really helped their performance quite a bit. You know, it's just really interesting seeing a lot of the boards kind of going retro back to single fin. Surfing back then, that was even back before the windsurf days. There was no one windsurfing. It was pretty much riding a wave on a board from 12 feet long to 6 feet long and basically trying to cut along the side of this wave as it's breaking, trying to stay right near the curl. And that's where most of the power is on the wave. And it's really a fascinating sport. You're constantly trimming, trying to keep your speed up. You're trimming for speed and right in the power part of the wave. And of course, the big thing for surfers is trying to get a tube ride. That's where the curl of the wave actually throws over on top of you. You're getting, you know, slotted, getting barreled, getting pitted, getting tubed, getting shacked. There's a lot of different words for it, but basically it's the wave throwing over you and it's just really a rush to see if you can race that lip and make it out of the tube again. You know, once you get tubed, you try to get as deep as you can and then pull back out of it and make the wave. It's really an awesome rush and of all the sports I've done, this one's really captured my heart more than any other sport for the longest period of time. So um, I don't think I'll ever get burnt out on surfing. Done a lot of snow skiing, you know, various sports, and by far surfing's the most challenging, and it's really hard to get burnt out. Tim, let's talk about the environment in the early 70s when you said you were surfing in Southern California. Skateboarding was also a big sport coming into its own. I've interviewed many pro skaters, one in particular, Randy Caton. I heard that skateboarding came from when there was no good surf, but the surfers still wanted to have a ride. Tell me what you know about that evolution oh yeah i mean i fortunately or unfortunately however you want to look at it i started out in the days of clay wheels and loose bearings you had to tighten your wheels up as your bearings wore and you start out on these clay wheels and then they went to urethane wheels basically a guy took a xerox copier apart and he used the urethane rubber that would take the sheets of paper from the copy machine and feed it and he decided to put it on a skateboard wow all of a sudden the ride was quieter smoother faster but those were still loose bearing wheels and then they went to a sealed bearing urethane wheel and oh my gosh that was a revolution in itself again smooth quiet you know you didn't have to constantly adjust your bearings and of course everyone was into how many 360s could you do how many windmills that's where you push on the front of the board and do a 180 degree turn and then the back of the board and do a 180 degree turn then the vertical the ramp skating and of course the pool skating really started kicking off yeah we were constantly on the hunt trying to find empty pools that had a decent transition You know, back in the day, a one-wheeler was a big deal. If you could go up to the top of the pool and pull all three wheels over the top of the coping and just have one wheel holding you on, that was a really big deal. Well, nowadays, you know, the kids are just busting huge aerials with twists, flips, and, you know, it's like anything, it's getting more extreme. But we are just starting to do aerials back in the day, but that was really heavy-duty advanced stuff. (laughs) So it's really fun watching what they're up to now. It's insane. Tim, let's talk about your father and your mother and how they influenced you in the out-of-doors as a child. Yeah, I remember as a kid, my dad building a Piver-designed trimaran. A trimaran has three hulls. It was a sailing vessel. 
I was pretty young at the time. I mean, I think he started the boat when I was six and finished it when I was maybe nine. He did quite a few modifications to the boat. It really performed quite well for its time. We would go sailing to Catalina and the Channel Islands. We did quite a bit of sailing in Southern California. We kept the boat moored at Redondo Beach. And I always had a blast just taking the dinghy out, the small vessel that was kind of the tender to the mothership. Mariposa del Mar was the name of the boat. Just exploring the jetties, looking for crabs, just had a blast. You know, even helping out doing some maintenance, some sanding on the boat. And I guess that sort of stuck in my head, the whole boating lifestyle. And that kind of started the wheels turning, well, someday I want to build a boat. I have a great buddy in Southern California family, the Haley's, and they took me for a five-week motorcycle surf trip. We were pre-running part of the Baja 1000, and then along the way, we did a bunch of surfing, and one place we hooked up with Robert August. He was one of the star surfers in the first Endless Summer, one of Mr. Brown, Senior Brown's surf film that really popularized surfing. It was just incredible. I mean, I was in heaven. We come back to Southern California, and my folks say, guess what? We're moving tomorrow to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I'm like, whoa, that was a real (laughs) shocker. Here I had the time of my life in Baja, and now here we're going to move to the mountains. And at the time, I wasn't very stoked about it. And there in Colorado, your father built a boat in a horse pasture. Earlier, you are mentioning how everybody was curious as to what he was doing and if perhaps he was building an ark, like Noah's Ark. Tell us more about that. Dad got the bug to build another boat, and this time he said, I'm going to design it from scratch. He ended up building another trimaran sailboat with the three hulls again out of West System epoxy and plywood. It was a tortured wood construction. Basically, you're taking the plywood and you're bending it around frames with quite a bit of force and it really makes a strong, light structure. It had mahogany stringers. We used a bunch of epoxy on it, and the boat was ahead of its time by quite a bit. It was very fast, very seaworthy. We cruised for a year in the Bahamas, just had a blast, and that definitely cemented my resolution to build a boat someday and go cruise. That was definitely the thing in my life. I said, okay, someday I'm going to build a boat. I'm going to design my own boat, and go do some cruising with my family and so that was really a wonderful thing but you know why we're in steamboat i did quite a bit of skiing you know made some great friends in school we did a lot of bump skiing that was our main thing ended up joining the freestyle team and then did that for a while got a little bit burnout on skiing of it worked at a night hill during high school and and race skates with the guys there and it, it was a blast but i was always thinking when could i get back to the ocean and go surfing I did a lot of 1,000 miles straight through drives to California as soon as I had my driver's license to get back in the ocean and go surfing again. Building that boat, you know, I knew right when I graduated high school, we finished the boat in Tarpon Springs and then did that cruise for a year in the Bahamas. And, oh, it was so nice to get back into the water surfing and sailing. Did a lot of fishing with a Hawaiian sling, a lot of trolling. That was incredible, an incredible year for the family. Now, when you talk about the family being on this boat that your father built, you have two other siblings, Tamika and Taylor. So we had your two parents, and then there are three children on the boat. And you guys were on that boat off and on for about 12 years sailing around. So tell us about what it was like to be on the boat with your other siblings and what you ate and where you went. 
most of the time we cruised the Bahamas primarily, of course, Florida and the Bahamas. But we really didn't get much further than that. It was always like time constraints. We had some technical difficulties. We were dismasted several times. Dismasted is where the sail was a sloop-rigged vessel, which means it just has one mast. Two sails in front of the mast, a jenniker or reacher, which is a big sail for going off the wind primarily. And then it had a jib, which is a little smaller sail that's very close to the mast. And then the main sail, which is on the mast and the boom back behind the mast. Oh, one time we were sailing in Exuma Sound, and it was probably blowing 25, and we were having a blast flying off the tops of the waves. You know, we were pushing the boat a little bit on the edge, and the mast was pumping just ever so slightly, and all of a sudden, boom, the mast comes ripping down. Luckily, no one was injured. And then we had this mast attached to the boat with the wires, the shrouds and the stays, and the halyards, everything that's supposed to keep the mast upright and the sails on starting to put holes in the boat and it was pretty exciting in 12 foot seas to get out there and try to winch up this mast without it damaging the boat at the same time you wanted to try to save as much as you could and we set up kind of a jury rig and sailed it over i think to let's see we made it to eleuthera you know it took us a while to piece everything back together i think that the family went back to the states for a while you know i got to stay in the boat and basically live off the sea ate a lot of lobster actually got sick of lobster eating it every day and grouper and snapper and it was either that eat rice or grouper snapper or conch or lobster (laughs) so it was it was a great time i really enjoyed that time in the bahamas by myself and it was great having the family as well my brother and sister were a little bit younger my brother and i had some great sailing battles we had a windsurf board and a like a laser type little monohull sailboat and we had some epic sailing duels on those two smaller sailing vessels. We're on location here on an island about 20 miles off the coast of Panama on the Pacific side looking towards the Pacific Ocean. The sun is still semi-high in the sky and I'm speaking with Tim Bergstresser. Tim, I'd like to ask you now about a moment, be it a close encounter with wild animal, weather, death, or perhaps just an epiphany in the out-of-doors When you realize this is what you want to do with your life, that you want to be close to the ocean or on the ocean, that this is something that you want to be around and build your life around. Oh, a moment. God, that's so hard. It seems like such a collage of a bunch of memories. I get really charged up being near the ocean. I don't know if it's the ions or what, the salt water, but it just really seems to agree with my system. If I'm away from the ocean for too long, I start getting the shakes. It was really tough spending the entire winter up in the mountains. I love skiing. For quite a few years, it was really a passion, but just something about that ocean just kept calling back to me. So I, I always knew that as soon as I graduated high school, in steamboat that I was going to head back to the Caribbean or somewhere, some ocean-type setting. Yeah, I mean, there's been you know times you're surfing in the Bahamas and the water is just crystal clear. You're looking down underneath your feet and you're seeing parrotfish and sturgeonfish swim by. And the waves are, sometimes when you're dropping down the face of the wave, the wave sucks up and gets really smooth. And you can see every little detail. You can, you can see the sea urchins, the fire coral. Oh my gosh, just, it's so amazing to, to be surfing in that gin-clear turquoise water. It really is like a dream to me.
We are on location speaking with Tim Bergstresser, and I'm going to ask you, Tim, to tell me what on location means to you right now. What are you looking at? Oh, we are at the beach, and right now there is a awesome air show going on. These seabirds are just really hammering some bait fish just right outside the surf break. There's some jacks that are working the bait fish up from the bottom. Yeah, it looks like they're probably jacks of some sort, maybe rooster fish. And the birds are just having a feast right now. And it's a high tide. It's a partly cloudy day, just a real light offshore breeze. It's pretty small surf today. We only have maybe three foot surf, but very clean. In fact, I can't wait to get out there and go surfing right now. There's a little right hand beach break working right now. I can't wait and see if I can get a few rides before dinner. I love it. This beach will be days where you won't see another soul on it. And it's just so rare in this day and age to have that where you don't see another human being for the entire day out on the beach. I absolutely love it. And the coconut palms are fantastic. The beach isn't a classic white. It's more of a volcanic black beach. It can get a little hot in the middle of the day. But, I mean, other than that, it's, it's just absolutely, for me, it's perfection. Looking behind, it does turn to a jungle, basically. Within 50 yards behind the beach, it goes from coconut palms. And then 50 yards back behind, we've got just very wide array of different trees and plants you know they've got everything on this island they've got coca-bola mango they've got of course all the papaya and the bananas and plantanos and it's it's a, a beautiful day quite a bit of driftwood on the beach here we're just coming into the summertime here it's kind of flip-flop from the united states their summer is is our winter it's a nice time to be here as the winds blow offshore pretty much all day long all night long when their summertime first hits here. We're on location on an island about 20 miles off the coast of Panama, looking towards the Pacific. And Tim, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of your early outdoor adventures. Led Zeppelin, no quarter. It was kind of that wake-up call when all of a sudden, hey, we're moving from Southern California to Steamboat Springs up in the mountains where it was culture shock. I mean, at the time, Steamboat was a ranching town, and I was a surf rat with hair down to the middle of my back, you know, all bleached out blonde, and they they just didn't know what to think of me. It was pretty hard fitting in And at the time where Steamboat was definitely more of a ranching town than a ski town. And no quarter struck a chord with me, so to speak, so um, I could relate. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We are on location on an island about 20 miles off the Pacific coast of Panama. And we're sitting on the Pacific side, looking towards the Pacific Ocean. I think there's maybe 45 minutes sunlight left. And I'm seeing the sun perfectly right now. It's being blocked by a bunch of coconut hanging from a low palm. I'm sure in a few minutes, though, it's going to be blasting me right in the face, but it's all right. We're sitting here with Timmy Bergstresser. Tim was a professional windsurfer. He is a boat builder, a surfboard builder, jet ski builder, and overall wizard. He comes from a couple of generations of boat builders. I'm going to be talking to him now about the evolution of windsurfing. Back in the day, it was called board sailing. Yes, that's correct, Mandela. And I'd seen some guys out in Southern California with the old original windsurf board. Hoyle Swizer was one of the first 
primarily the big push to get it an actual commercial board out that was available to the masses. And we had picked up one of the factory seconds for, I think, $600. And we started playing around with it in some reservoir in Texas. We were on a road trip, and we put this thing together. And, oh, it was kind of fun. We were floundering around for a few hours before we finally figured out, hey, yeah, how to make it go. And basically, a sailboard or a windsurf board is a giant surfboard. The first ones were right around 12 feet long or so with a sail attached to it with a universal joint of some sort. The original ones had a mechanical U-joint. The neat thing being you didn't have a rudder per se, but you used the sail as the steering mechanism for the board. So, you know, as you lean the sail forward, that center of effort of the sail is over the front of the board and you go downwind. As you lean the sail back, that center of effort's over the back of the board more, and the board goes up into the wind. It's a fantastic sport. It really is a very intimate form of sailing because every little subtle nuance between leaning the sail and then sheeting the sail in for the proper angle of attack on the wind, you know, you feel it. There's no lag. Hit a little gust of wind and sheet in, and you accelerate instantly. The board lifts up out of the water. As soon as we got that board, my dad and I started working on okay, we can improve this thing. And we started building some epoxy boards and putting foot straps on the boards and several fins on the board and shortening the boards up. That was the heydays of windsurfing where the shape was changing pretty much every few months. The boards were getting shorter and faster and lighter and the sails were evolving, the fins were evolving. It was a total blast. Prior to monkeying around with the windsurf boards, you know, I'd help my dad build a boat and I'd built some snowboards not really with steel edges like you think of nowadays but we were building these snowboards with backpack straps cut off of our school backpacks we had a good primer between building surfboards and boats you know, a bunch of other things in epoxy so why not let's build a wind surfboard well they really started working out fantastic i started competing down in florida and friends would try a board out hey i love it so we started making boards for friends and it kind of evolved into a business the boards were at one point almost half the weight of the competition. We were vacuum bagging these real thin PVC skins with epoxy resin and carbon fiber skins over that. And we had a huge advantage racing. We were racing against guys that were training all the time in Maui and other windy places. And, you know, in Florida, the wind doesn't always crank. You, you don't always have good training. <laughs> you don't get the amount of time on the water with the high winds that the guys that live in some of the other places around the world do. But we were still really competitive just because the boards were so fast. That was fun, kind of helping the sport evolve with the boards. 1988, I had a pretty bad crash. It was blown about 50 in Corpus Christi, Texas. It was the U.S. national race, and I blew my wrist up into like 25 pieces. Robbie Nash, who was the world champ at the time, helped drag me in. I was out about a half a mile, and, and I was kind of done competing for at least a year and a half, two years. And so I really got into the business aspect of it more, and we started cranking out some months we were doing 30 boards a month and sending a lot of them over to Europe. At the time, windsurfing was really in the heyday. They had a World Cup. Three of the World Cups had over $100,000 purses. And the last big World Cup, after I had just sold the company, I think 26 of the riders had our boards. They might have had you know, other stickers on the boards, but we actually manufactured the boards. 
That was a great achievement, you know, for us from a building point of view and design point of view. I had a business partner, Pat Limahote, and he was really instrumental in taking it very scientific. We, uh, scientific. we had oh, a velocity prediction program that had a bunch of different variables that we'd plug in and, and we could predict how fast a board was before we built it, and it was incredibly accurate. We'd trial horse boards. We were about the same speed, so we'd go out and make subtle changes and try one against the other. And At the time, I was living in the Florida Keys, and we'd run out to Hawks Channel, which was about a few miles offshore, and then go past the reef and out into the Gulf Stream and try the boards in a variety of conditions, from big chop to swell, and then we'd take it in the grass flats where it was almost smooth water, and sometimes you'd get these... 20 knot days where there was hardly a ripple on the water and it was really fun it was a great time to be in the windsurf industry after that kiting really took off like a shot understandably so i mean it's fantastic to travel with just basically a backpack with a couple kites maybe one or two boards the size of a wakeboard and the kite boarding is interesting the fact you don't have a mast and a boom so to speak, like you do with the windsurf board. You have basically 100 to 120 foot lines that hold up this kite that's approximately, I mean, anywhere between 8 to 18 meters, 20 meters. You have these inflatable bladders that you blow up. And almost all my windsurf buddies jumped ship and went over to kiting pretty quick. In the beginning days of kiting, it was pretty sketchy. The wind range was insanely narrow. You know, you'd be powered up perfectly, and the wind would blow another knot or two, and then you were overpowered, and then it would drop a few knots, and you were underpowered. But nowadays, the kites are quite a bit safer and have a big wind range, so it's really um, opened that sport up a bunch. You can plane off and have a blast in winds as light as 8, 10 knots, where windsurfing really didn't get to be fun until it was blowing a good 15 knots or so. From an experience point of view, how does kiteboarding differ from windsurfing? Windsurfing, you're really driving the board horizontally through the water with your arms. You've got a harness. This harness kind of wraps around your waist, and some of them are seat harnesses. They wrapped around your leg straps, and you kind of sit down in it. And you have these harness lines attached to this wishbone boom that goes around the perimeter of the sail. The feel is basically like your water skiing, except you know, you've got this sail pulling you through the water at times mock speed. I mean, I've, I've had friends that have been clocked at 55 miles an hour over a 500-meter course. It's really a rush. You're getting pulled through the water horizontally. You feel pretty connected to the water. Now, with a kite, it's a little bit more of a 3D experience to some degree. Depending on the attitude where the kite's flown, you're getting either pulled down into the water if you keep the, the kite really low down in the power zone, or if you fly it a little higher up, you know, you're getting that kind of lifty light feeling. You're constantly changing that power zone with the kite. It's pulling you down in the water. You're railing against the force of the kite quite hard with the edge of the kiteboard. Kind of like you're doing a big carving turn on a snowboard, except you're just holding that edge for that whole tack. As you come and get ready to do your turn, where you normally do a jibe turn on a high-performance windsurf board going downwind, at least on most planing boards, the kite, you can do two things. You can either jibe it or shunt it, where the front end becomes the back end now. And it's kind of an interesting sensation, shunting just like a proa sailboat does the proa the front end becomes the back end a lot of the old polynesian boats were actually proas a total different sensation 
Kiteboarding is a little more dangerous. You definitely have to watch your weather conditions. If there's thermals, you can get lifted up in the air a couple hundred feet and slam down and stuff. So you really do have to pay attention more. It is somewhat like paragliding or hang gliding mixed in there with sailing. There is that vertical component to it. When you do change directions, it's really a blast to watch the guys that are really top level. I mean, they're flying easily 50 feet up in the air as that kite changes directions and you're still going one way all of a sudden you just get this catapult lift straight up and the kites really put on an amazing air show even in flat water where windsurfing the jumping and stuff sure you could hop chop jump and get up five feet up in the air six feet at best but you really couldn't get big air until you were out in the surf you know the conditions are a little bit more finicky for the windsurfing to really have a blast you want side offshore winds with the kiting, you know, you don't get that wind shadow when you're running parallel to the waves. In really big surf, with a windsurf board, you do get blanketed by the wave a bit with the sail since you can't fly that sail up, you know, 100 feet off the water. We are sitting on an island about 20 miles off the Pacific coast of Panama, and we're speaking with Timmy Bergstresser. Timmy was a professional windsurfer. He is a boat builder, surfboard builder, jet ski builder, and a wizard overall. Timmy... I have other questions in regards to windsurfing and experimenting with wind and experimenting with the sport as it changed and evolved. But since what's going on right now is happening, I was just wondering if you could share with our listeners what you see right now. Oh, it's a beautiful evening. The sun is just setting over a distant point of land. It's probably about 78 degrees. It's light winds. Looks like we're going to have a fantastic sunset in just another few minutes. It's already starting. It's pretty tranquil right now. The breeze isn't cranking. Looks like we've got a panga offshore getting ready to do some snapper fishing for the evening. Hey, there's my daughter and my nephew walking down the beach. Yeah, it's so rare to see people here. When you see someone, it's like, hey, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, nice evening. Cool. To me, we'll wrap this up in a moment. But I want to ask you about the experimenting that happens in the early days of a sport evolving like chasing the wind, windsurfing, kiteboarding, sailing, getting faster. What are people doing to make things faster? Compare and contrast, if you will, how experimenting with the evolution of a sport as it's coming out differs from when you master it or get better at it and want to increase your experimenting by trying to change up how it's built for speed. At least with windsurfing, that's really something I was really focused on. That, that was my life for quite a while. It seems like I can really get into something that's fun for about 10 years <laughs> before I get burnt out. But I really gave it heck for 10 years. Going from a big long board that was more of a displacement board, kind of stuck in the water, to where we ended up, which was basically you know a high performance, a very small board that was maybe eight and a half feet long, nine feet long, with very little wetted surface area when you're planing off. Sometimes we only had maybe the last 18 inches of the actual windsurf board in the water, and the rest of it, you know, you're just skipping like a rock. You're on top of the water and on a full plane. You know, that's really what we were all about, trying to get on top of the water on a full plane with as little wetted surface area as possible. That's our whole thing. In water, if we can get rid of wetted surface area, it's drag. So we're trying to get up out of the water and just fly along the tops of the waves, hopefully in control. Maybe sometimes not totally in control. But there was a triangle between the sail, the fin, and the board. 
So any time one of those parts of the triangle changed, you could change the other two components of it. You know, as the sails got more efficient and faster, it would change what we could do with the boards, how we designed the boards. As the fins got higher aspect and became pretty much almost like a glider wing, you see these high-performance gliders with these long, skinny wings. Well, that's basically what we were doing the same thing, except instead of horizontally, we were doing it vertically in the water. We really were flying off of our fin as much as we were the planing surface area of the board. You know, sometimes just changing the rocker of a board a hundredth of an inch made a noticeable difference in the way it performed. The amount of wetted surface area it took, the amount of wind it took to plane, the way it turned, the way it jibed. It was really fun to get out there and just, you know, we were just trying to optimize everything primarily for performance, windsurfing, competition, and also for the wave boards too as far as handling, you know, how the boards would handle on the wave face. Although that wasn't our total forte. That was more the guys out in Hawaii. Being based in Florida, we focused more on slalom racing. And to some extent, when the shortboards came into course racing, that's what we were really focused on, those two aspects. We did some pretty crazy stuff with stepped bottoms, even putting some air chambers under the board to actually ventilate the board and get rid of wetted surface area. It was really fun to do that. <laughs> I was just given a, a coconut. They call it the coconut juice, at least in Central America, they call it pipa. So I'm just going to take a little slug of pipa and pass the mic over to Mandela. Awesome. We're sitting here on location of an island about 20 miles off the coast of Panama. The sun has set. Now the hermit crabs are getting out. And from my perspective, it reminds me of some kind of Jim Henson movie where all these hermit crabs, their shells are moving across the beach. And when you come out here, when it's completely dark with your head torch, there's a whole bunch of them, piles. Timmy, let's play a song. What song reminds and or inspires you? in relation to when you're doing the night watch, when you were doing it, was there ever a song that came to mind? Most of the time when we were doing long passages on the sailboat, it was so awesome just really tuning into the conditions, the stars. I mean, I hardly even looked at the compass. I loved to hand steer. You just kind of get locked in on a constellation and kind of keep that in your sights and then really feel the wind on your face. It was fun to do it old school style and you know, sure, at times you'd have the autopilot on and maybe read a book and grab the binocs and do your scan every few minutes. But a lot of times it was fun just to tune into nature and not even listen to any music. On a night watch, you know, maybe I'm starting to doze off a little bit, time to crank up some tunes, grab a little green tea or something. B-52's Rock Lobster, that might kind of wake me up a little bit and get me jazzed for another hour before I can maybe give watch over to someone else. It's the trail less traveled with Mandela. Está usted escuchando la ruta menos caminada o menos transitada. La aventura en las afueras, en los caminos abiertos con Mandela en el camino 103.3 FM. Su fuente de información para esta aventura e inspiración es los domingos a las 6 p.m. y los martes a las 10 p.m. Felicitaciones, Mandela, por este programa. Necesitamos más de este en el mundo.
You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, outdoor adventure with Mandela on the Trail 1033. I am on the phone right now with Timmy Bergstresser, and the last time I spoke with you, Timmy, we were sitting on the beach in Panama, and the surf was so good that we completely forgot to finish our interview, and that's completely fine, but you know, it's kind of a juxtaposition. Last time we were sitting in the sand under a palm tree, yeah. and now I'm on the phone with you. I know. I miss it. I wish we were back in Panama. Anyway, I'm right now in Florida at that boat building shop during in Panama, but anyway, this is fun as well. Thank you so much to me for, first of all, inviting me to join you and your family with my partner, Wesley, down at your property in Panama. Oh, it's our pleasure. You guys are awesome. Welcome anytime. Well, Timmy, I'd like to end this show with three Timmy Bergstresser outdoor adventure tips. You know, I think it's always smart to keep an eye on the weather. I know, like here in Florida, I see so many people going out in the summer when we have these wicked thunder squalls that just normally develop inland and then head out into the Gulf, and you'll see these guys in small boats getting caught out there all the time and capsized. You know, just kind of be aware, you know, see what's going on around you. You know, I guess something related to boating is don't rely on electronic devices. I have friends that have gotten rid of all their paper charts, and they're just doing it with GPS solely. And GPS is wonderful. In a way, it's kind of ruined some cruising grounds because anyone can get there now. They're just plugging the coordinates. But, you know, they do have the random electrical malfunctions, and you get struck by lightning. They can wipe out the whole electronic system on a boat. So, you know, keep the whole dead reckoning. You know, take a fix on a paper chart if you're doing a long passage out of sight of land. I think that's always a smart thing to, to keep those paper charts and get your GPS fix when you have it once a, every hour or two. And you can always find your way back just by dead reckoning, you know, doing it old school life. Another adventure tip, watch out for those drones. It'll be interesting to see what the future holds. <laughs> I'm not a paranoid person, but it's kind of fun, you know, to see how the drones are going to change everything. And you might have to be a little more reserved and not as cavalier. I know when we're out cruising, a lot of times it's clothing optional. And I had a friend out the other day out in the Gulf of Mexico, and he said, yeah, I actually saw a drone buzz over us, our boat. He said, oh, man, you've got to think about that now. So, Well, Timmy, what song would you like to end the show with? Lately, I've been into the Twin Drummers song on BOC. It's just sort of like an altered state while being sober, which is always good. I'm really into being clear of mind. It's kind of a lot of distortion and kind of just more of a wailing away. puts me in that frame of mind of tuning into that other part of your brain and designing some cool stuff. When I'm in the shop shaping a board or something, lately that's kind of been my band I've been into. Hola. You have been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration, with a new show coming out every week. Subscribe to The Trail Less Traveled on iTunes, and check out traillesstraveled.net to read biographies and see pictures about this week's guests. I would like to thank my guest for this week, Timmy Bergstresser. Timmy had a passion for the ocean and surfing from a young age, and followed that passion even when his family moved to Colorado in his teens. Timmy comes from a family of inventors, boat builders, and wizards. Timmy spent part of his youth on a sailboat in the Caribbean that his father built in a horse pasture in Colorado. Tim Bergstresser influenced the world of windsurfing with his contributions designing and building lighter, faster, 
and groundbreaking boards. Timmy built the 60-foot catamaran sailboat that he and his wife, Nancy, raised their family on, and they are currently building their home on an island off the Pacific coast of Panama. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. My goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in the same fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company or on location around the world in order to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is in regards to windsurfing. Always look up and do not look at your feet. Your head weighs 30% of your body weight and massively affects your balance. Well, that's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. <laughs> <laughs>